Good morning, Providence. So if you could take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter number 2. Luke 2.22, we are going to cover a passage today. It's, it's in the birth narrative, but we're in the timeline. We're 40 days after Jesus was born in the paragraph that we're going to be reading today. And uh, we're going to be all over the Bible today. Last week I preached on the genealogy, as you know. And so I'm trying to um, top that one somehow with, no, I'm just kidding. I'm um, uh, going somewhere with this, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, If you'll stand with me, we'll read together Luke 2, verses 22 to 32. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, as I said, that's 40 days after the birth of Jesus, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And I'm sure most of you know that this is the offering of somebody who's in poverty. Uh, Jesus' parents were poverty stricken. And this little uh, snippet right here lets us know that fact. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child to Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I want you to notice the connection there. Uh, He can leave in peace because he saw the, the salvation of the Lord that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Lord, I thank you for the uh, blessed privilege it is to be able to open your word and to see Christ afresh and anew. And as the title of the sermon is called Christmas Hope, I pray that the content today will instill hope in people's hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. So as I said, Luke brings us about 40 days after Jesus' birth to his dedication at the temple. Now, remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. If you're standing on the Mount of Olives, which is part of Jerusalem proper, uh, you can see Bethlehem. It's only six miles away. So a very short journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And so they they, um, went to the temple to dedicate Jesus and a righteous man named Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, consolation of Israel is a term for the Messiah. So he was waiting for the Messiah. The next verse states that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. I want you to try to think with me how exciting that would have to be. Exciting that he's going to see the Messiah Can you imagine what was going on in his mind? Well, what is the Messiah going to look like? What are his parents going to look like? Uh, And he had all these questions. He had to. He's a human being, right? He, He would meet the prophesied, anointed 
king, king of Israel. He knew the Messiah was a king. The one who um, was subject to multitudes of prophecies in the Old Testament. And when the Spirit revealed in the temple who the Christ was, it says that he took him in his arms and he said a blessing. And verse number 30 says, My eyes have seen your salvation. That moment for Simeon was the culmination of hundreds of years of hoping in Israel. They had a hope of the coming Messiah that had been going for uh, 700 years for sure. And if you go all the way back to the law of Moses, at least 1,400 years that they had been hoping for the coming of the Messiah. Now imagine with me, can you, can you put on your um, whatever, um, I'm not very imaginative, but imagine with me for just a minute being a Jewish person right before the arrival of Christ. What, what is your, what's going on in your mind? What are you thinking about historically and, and everything else? The nation began with so much promise. Remember that? Uh, what other nation on earth had the Lord lead them through the wilderness of, of, in, in the desert? No one. Uh, Exodus 23 and verse number 30 this is God speaking. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you to the place that I prepared. Wouldn't you like to have that next time you go into Washington, D.C.? Right? But, but God, God's angel went with them through the wilderness to guard and protect them and to guide and lead them in the way that they should go. How many times would you like to have that as well? God, I don't know what to do in this decision. And if you just had an angel there to say, hey, this is what you need to do, wouldn't it be awesome? It really wouldn't be because then you wouldn't have any faith in God and, and everything else. But and <clears throat> not only that, but they went to a place that was prepared. Now, here's my question for you. And I want you to think with me as we go through these Old Testament passages who is this angel? Who's this angel that's leading them through the wilderness? Well, it's actually a very complicated answer, but I'm going to show you just a little Old Testament thing that some of you know about, and for some of you it's going to be uh, new, and it's going to be a blessing, I think. If you want to, turn to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Now, what we learn in Exodus 33 is that Moses had a habit of going outside the camp of Israel to what they called the tent of meeting, and he would go speak with the Lord and, and actually have a conversation with the Lord. And the summary is found in verse number 11. Look at what it says. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, how? Face to face as a man speaks to his friend. How cool is that? That's not figurative language. That is actual descriptive language of what went on. God spoke to him as a friend speaks to a friend. That had to be completely awesome. So God was speaking, or Moses was speaking with God face to face. Now, let's think about what we know about Scripture for just a minute. We're going to think this thing through. 
can we see the Father? The answer is no. The Bible is very clear. No man has seen the Father, and no man can see the Father and live. Men have seen the glory of God. Moses is one of them. He's seen the glory. God said, I'm going to show you my, my backside. That's figurative language for uh, you're only going to see my glory. You can't actually see me. Another place God said, I'm going to put my hand uh, to shield you, right? Men have only seen the glory of God. That is why Jesus said, he said this in John, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay? Now, you're in Exodus 33. I want you to look three verses later. Three verses later, verse number 14, this is what God told Moses. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, the reason I want to show you that verse is because of the word presence. That word presence, the Hebrew word there is the word face. Now, I know what you're thinking to me. Those people, or you're thinking those people spoke differently. That's just a weird way of saying something. No, actually, the word face is in very important. Literally, the verse reads, my face will go with you. Now, most English versions translate that word face as presence, as in this verse. And I'll tell you something. If you ever go to Israel with me, by the way, in a year we're going back to Israel. So if you're interested, I'll have more information in another month or so. But um, our guide, that he criticized English translations that put the word presence instead of the word face in there. That, that was offensive to him. And I'm going to tell you why. Follow with me because it's really fascinating. Look back at verse number 11, Exodus 33, 11. Moses is talking to God face to face. Which person of the Trinity is Moses talking to at this point and seeing? Jesus Christ. He can't see the Father, and so the Son. So it says face to face. Now notice verse number 14. He says, my face. Now let's stick the word Jesus in there. My face, Jesus, will be with you. And what is he going to do? Give you rest. Does that ring a bell in the Gospels anywhere? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and I will give you rest. Does that make sense to you? This is, this is Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. So let's take this together. As I said, there's a lot I could say. I could spend a couple hours on this. But who is leading Israel through the wilderness? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the face of God. Jesus said in the New Testament, whoever sees me sees the Father. He's the face of God. Now, Israel starts out so well. Let's go back to our original thought. They start out so well. They're, they're going out of Egypt, all the plagues, opening of the Red Sea, the walking through on dry ground. They're in the wilderness. Uh, bread is being provided. Water is being provided. They've got a guide. They've got light. They've got protection. They've got all of that. But there's an ominous warning at the end of the wilderness wandering in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you remember, Deuteronomy 
is a series of Moses sermons right before they go. They're, they're standing on the mountains looking into the promised land. They can see the promised land, and he's given his last speeches to them. In Deuteronomy 31, there's a, there's a, a Moses is relaying the covenant to them, and he says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. So God just tells them, look, Moses, you're going to die. They're going to forsake me. They're going to whore after other gods, break my covenant. What's going to happen when they break his covenant? Next verse. Then my anger will be kindled against them, and I will forsake them, and what will he do? Hide my face. Who's the face? Remember? Let's keep reading. And they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely, here it is again, hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, knowing what we just learned about the phrase face, the face of God, who the face of God is, which person of the Trinity is going to be hidden from them? Jesus Christ. So that, that starts out right away, 1400 BC, they go into, um, they go into the promised land, and there's a it's there goes judges goes real low and then they, they get a high point with david and solomon and then they just drop off a cliff and it's it's bad so now we're going to fast forward 700 years to the time of isaiah the prophet and by that time um let me say this there are many many old testament references to god hiding his face to the israelites i don't know if you knew that or not as a matter of fact rabbis today in israel when they reference the holocaust they say god is hiding his face why is god hiding his face from us that's the language they still use today so um, for our purposes the face of god in the old testament is jesus christ fast forward 700 years to the time of isaiah and things are not going well for israel remember they split in two the northern kingdom already fell to Assyria, and Judah is in decline. God is not protecting them. He's, he's literally piece by piece stripping away land from Judah, wealth from Judah, uh, kings from Judah. And there were two groups of people in the nation at this time. There was a righteous remnant who was waiting for the Messiah, and there were hardened sinners pursuing everything but God. And the righteous remnant is waiting upon the Lord. And we find Isaiah 8 in verses 16 and 17. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is what? Hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope. So what are the righteous doing 700 plus years before Jesus comes? They know that God's hiding his face from them, but they know the Messiah is coming, and so they're hoping in this coming Messiah. 
That's what people who know God do. They hope in God. They, they hope in his promises. The consequences of the Lord hiding his face from the Israelites devastating, demoralizing, depressing. But God promised the, the Messiah would come and bring salvation. And this is what they learn next verses in chapter number 9 of Isaiah, verses 2 and 3. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. This is a description of the coming of Jesus. And of course, Isaiah 9, you understand, is part of the Christmas narrative in the New Testament, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, this is a prediction that the Messiah would come and shine the glory of God to the Gentiles. And so for another 700 years, righteous Jewish people hung on to that hope. So we got 1,400 years of this already. For 700 years, faithful Jewish people waited and hoped for the Messiah. They hoped through exile, then, when they came back into the promised land and re-inhabited it, they, they hoped through the 400 silent years when God did not speak from the end of Malachi until the birth of Jesus. They, they endured constant war. They were conquered by the Greeks, Alexander the Great. They were, again, conquered by the Romans. But they kept hoping. Why? Why did they keep hoping? Because God keeps his promises, doesn't he? And that brings us to today's text. Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And so for 700 years, Jewish people read Isaiah's prophecy and lived in hope at the coming of the Messiah. And now here he is. What do we know about him? Well, he's born in a probably in a stable initially laid in a manger a feeding trough in bethlehem his birth was accompanied by a great host of angels a multitude of the angels right a heavenly host announcing his coming and now he's being brought into the temple and he's being blessed and worshiped by this aged saint and we live in a nation that's declining morally, spiritually, probably soon to be many other ways. We live in a nation where unrighteousness seems to be the rule of the day. Doesn't it seem to be that way? The hearts of the citizens of our nation are turning to sex and money and wickedness, and they're turning away from God. They don't want to have anything to do with God in the halls of our leadership, in, in the halls of our influence, whether it's, it's uh, the, the thinkers of our society or the entertainers of our society. They want nothing to do with God. In, in Basically, the world is a very disappointing place, isn't it? 
And my question is this. Did hope run out when Jesus came the first time? Do we have anything to hope for like the Israelites did? Believe it or not, Luke 22 is not my main text. <laughs> we're now going to get to my main text. If you'll turn with me to Titus 2, this is where we're going to be for the rest of this message. Because it is the fulfillment of the coming of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of that hope that gives us hope right now. And I want to show that to you. Titus chapter 2, verse number 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed, there's that word, hope, in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So my question is, what do we hope for? What do we hope for? Well, it says, Paul says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so the hope, according to this verse, that we're waiting for is the second coming of the Lord. That's our hope, isn't it? He came once. It was marvelous and wonderful. And he's coming again. I want you to notice that there's actually two appearings of Christ. Two appearings of Christ in these verses. First of all, one called the appearing of grace. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That's the first coming of Jesus. That's the appearing of grace. He comes and provides salvation and offers salvation to all peoples, all kinds of peoples, that word there, that word all. The appearing of grace. He's the grace of God that appeared. But then, verse number 13 talks about a second appearing of Christ waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the appearing of His glory. Think about this for just a minute. He came born to poor parents. He was despised and rejected by men. His parents weren't kings. He was born from a kingly lineage we learned last week. He was... He was humble. He was homeless. But that was the appearing of His grace. When He comes back, He's coming in blazing glory. Remember the angelic glory that caused the shepherds to fear? That glory is nothing compared to the glory that we will see when Christ comes again. First grace, then glory. In, in Paul's mind, these two are, are inseparably linked. The Christ who will come in glory is the Christ who came in grace. 
Verse 14 of Titus 2 describes exactly how that grace appeared. It says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So when the grace of Christ appeared 2,000 years ago, it appeared as a real man who really died to redeem us from sin and to make us zealous or, or passionate for good deeds. And this was the aim and purpose of God's, of the appearance of God's grace in Jesus Christ, to make us zealous for good works. The same aim of grace is described in verse number 12 as well. The grace of God appeared, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. This is the same saying that Christ aimed to purify us to make us zealous for good deeds. To be zealous for good deeds means that we're going to live self-controlled, upright, and godly and abstain from worldly passions and renounce ungodliness. And so verses 12 and 14 are like a sandwich around verse number 13. Both verses describe the aim and effect of God's grace as it appeared in the first coming of Jesus Christ, but the meat, the meat in the middle of the sandwich is this. What God's grace has become in our lives through the first coming of Christ, His glory will complete in our lives through the second coming. In other words, we have to try, don't we? We work to be upright. We work to abstain from sin. We work to um, uh, stay away from worldly passions. But when His glory appears, there will be no more work. Because we will be just like Him. For we will see Him as He is. Aren't you excited about that one? I'm driving nine hours today when I get done with the second service. Do you know what I'm going to fight a constant temptation to do? I'm really offended. I heard what you said. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, yes, I'm going to be tempted to speed. I just want to get there. I want to I see my grandkids. Get out of my way, people. I'm going to see my grandkids. That's going to be a nine-hour temptation for me. And if it's not for you, I'm, you're better than me. But when Christ comes back, no more temptation. We'll be glorious just like Him. So it would be fair to say, on the basis of these four verses, 11 to 14, that the incentive and power to live the Christian life pleasing to God comes from two directions. It comes from looking back with gratitude to the grace of God that appeared in Jesus Christ at His first coming when He purchased our redemption. And it comes from looking forward with hope to the glory of God that will appear at the second coming when, get this, when He completes our redemption. Won't that be wonderful? Heather used to say um, about certain people, I will like them a lot better in heaven. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? <laughs> Hebrews 9, 27, 28 uh, describes the connection between the past and future work of Jesus Christ probably as clearly as any biblical text. It says, 
And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. I'm waiting for that. That's my hope. His second coming. He's appearing a second time. Not to deal with sin. Praise God. But to save those who are eagerly awaiting Him. Just as Old Testament Israelites were eagerly awaiting the first coming, those who know Christ are eagerly awaiting His second coming. This passage so clearly teaches that the saving work of Christ began with His first coming when He bore our sin in His body and the cross and will be completed at His second coming when He saves us from the final wrath of God and listen to this, gives us rest. Remember that? Do, uh, um, uh, Exodus 33:14, and again Matthew 11, I will give you rest. We will rest on you know, many fronts, and one of the fronts that we will rest from, no longer will there be temptation to sin. So exciting. Now here's a question for you. Who will be saved at the second coming? What does verse say? Those who eagerly wait for him. So I have a question for you. Do you eagerly await the coming of Christ? And I don't mean, do you believe the doctrine? I mean, do you really eagerly wait for the second coming of Christ? This is a very crucial test of the genuineness of your faith. Peter said in his first letter, to you who believe, he is precious. I was talking to a family member on the phone just last night. This, this family member is not saved. To talk about Christ and Christmas, uh, no big deal. But you start talking about Football, cars, money, retirement, they get excited. That stuff's important. That doesn't excite me like the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a test of your salvation. Do you eagerly await the second coming of Jesus Christ? And so the preciousness of Christ is the evidence of your faith. The anticipation of His coming is evidence of His preciousness. And therefore, you can test the reality of your faith by whether or not you are eagerly waiting for Christ's coming. And I don't mean that you've got to be thinking about it all the time, but rather, there, here, let me give you three questions to ask yourself if you're eagerly waiting His coming. Number one, does your mind frequently come back to the appearing of Jesus Christ? Number two, when your mind turns to the truth of His appearing, does your heart want it? Is it eager for it? Is there an eagerness to see Jesus face to face? And number three, do you pray for His coming? You know, the early church prayed, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Paul says that the appearance of the grace of God at Christ's first coming trains us to wait eagerly for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Isn't that wonderful? Let me give you three things very briefly. Paul said, Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number one, Chris's hope is a blessed hope. We should eagerly await the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because this is blessed. Think about this. What's the blessing? How about this verse? Therefore, this is Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Is that blessed hope? There's only blessing for those who are in Jesus. As awesome as the second coming of Christ will be, there will be no curse for it in Christians. Notice what, <coughs> notice what Christ is called in this verse. He's called the great God <coughs> and Savior. He's not merely a judge. Therefore, put on the breastplate of faith and love for the helmet of hope of salvation. Listen, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, and 9. Praise be to God. Our hope is in the confident expectation of the salvation, not wrath. So it's a blessed hope. Secondly, it's a visible hope. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Ever since the Son of God became man, men and women had wanted to see Jesus. Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Zacchaeus climbed a sycamore tree because he wanted to see the Greeks said to the disciples, Sir, we would see Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. I cannot wait to see the face of my Savior, Jesus Christ. I see Him darkly now. I don't understand His ways and purposes all completely. I don't, I don't um, see Him as I should. My mind is clouded by sin. But one day... It's all going to be removed. And I will see Him in His blazing glory. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was transfigured to the glory that He will have in, in heaven, all the, the disciples, the three that were there, they fell on their faces in fear. But when we are redeemed at His second coming, and He appears, and our, our redemption's complete, or not our redemption, our sanctification's complete, our glorification has appeared, we will see Him and we will not even fear. Won't that be a wonderful time? I don't want a text. I don't want a Facebook message. I want to see the lips of Jesus move on that great day and with the grace of His heart overflows and hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you? Those will be the most... Those will be the most magnificent words you've ever heard in your entire life. Won't that be wonderful? Number three, not only is it blessed, not only is it visible, it's a glorious hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to what John said in Revelation. He said this, he said, He is coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, and we shall glorify the Lord, 
and we will enjoy His greatness forever and ever and ever. And so if you know Jesus as your Savior, then you know what you have? You have Christmas hope. Simeon saw the salvation of the Lord, the culmination of hoping for 1,400 years. That was 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years ago, he promised he will come again. And so we hope for his second coming. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who, what? Loved his appearing. And we get those crowns and we get those rewards not for anything that we have done. It's all because of what Jesus Christ has done. That is Christmas hope. So as we celebrate the first coming, let us eagerly wait for his second in the hope that we will have and we all have in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the, the first coming of Jesus, the culmination of, of hundreds of years of promises. Things were dismal in Israel when he came the first time, but he came in blazing glory. He came in grace. And Lord, this world is dismal. There are wars, rumors of wars. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They don't want to have anything to do with God. And so, Lord, we wait and we anticipate. And you tell us, Lord, that hope brings joy. And so we can joy, joy we can celebrate with joy the first coming of Jesus Christ and hope with joy when he comes again. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's saying in their heart, I, you know, I don't really anticipate a second coming, but maybe today you'll speak to their heart, help them to consider seriously whether they know Jesus or not. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.